Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In August 1940... Several police officers arrived at the Holmby Hills, California home of 34-year-old Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Ben's butler, John Hood, answered the door and let them in. The police stepped into the spacious, high-end house. Hood told the officers that Ben was asleep and alone. Ben's wife, Esta, and their two daughters were traveling. He told the officers to wait downstairs while he went to wake Ben. But Hood returned alone. He'd just entered Ben's room and found it empty. The police officers searched the nearly three dozen rooms for over an hour. Additional backup was stationed outside to confirm that Ben wasn't making an escape. The sheets on his unmade bed were still warm. He had to be inside. But where? Finally, one of the officers pointed out that Ben's discarded slippers were pointing at the linen closet in the bedroom. Then someone else noticed that the plush carpet still held a footprint. Inside the linen closet, one of the shelves was broken, some of the linen was crushed, and up on the ceiling was the faint outline of a trap door. The police sent their smallest counterpart, Officer Tolbert, up through the dark opening in the ceiling. Within seconds, he ordered Ben to exit the attic. Then, Ben's bare feet emerged from the ceiling, followed by the rest of him in pajamas and a housecoat. Ben played it cool, like he hadn't just been discovered in his attic. He shrugged at the officers, saying casually, Boys, I don't know what this is about but I'll come along without any argument. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins, a ParCast original. Every Friday, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. 
As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power changed them and how it changed the community around them. You can find episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Kingpins for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Kingpins in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This is our second episode on notorious gangster Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. Last week, we covered Ben's criminal origins in New York, where he built a reputation as a fearless and clever bootlegger and killer. But in the late 1930s, Ben moved to Los Angeles and saw a whole new future for himself. This week, we'll find out how Ben went from killing to construction and if he'll be able to fulfill the pipe dream of every gangster lucky enough to get old, going straight. Ben played off his August 1940 arrest for the murder of Harry Greenberg like it was nothing. As his high-powered attorneys petitioned the court to delay his arraignment, Ben chatted with reporters, disputing the cop's version of events. Ben indignantly denied that he ever climbed into the attic, instead claiming that he had simply been in the linen closet and the cops had neglected the search there. He told reporters, The marks the detectives say I left on the linen closet climbing up the attic were made by the officers themselves. In regards to the charges against him, including murder, Ben shrugged it off, saying, The whole story they're telling against me is ridiculous. With typical bravado, he claimed, I'll beat this thing if it takes everything I've got. Ben was in for a fight. We'll never know exactly what happened the night that Harry Greenberg was murdered, but law enforcement put together the following narrative based on evidence and interviews. In August 1939, Louis Lepke Buchalter summoned Ben to an apartment in Los Angeles. Lepke was an old New York syndicate friend of Ben's, and now he needed Ben's help. Lepke had been on the lam for two years, and he was tired of running. But before he turned himself in, he had a few loose ends to take care of. The loose end Lepke wanted Ben to handle was Harry Greenberg, former muscle for Lepke's New York labor rackets. Harry had tried to blackmail Lepke already, so Lepke was sure he would flip if given half a chance. Ben didn't hesitate, telling Lepke, If Greenberg is in California, you do not have to worry anymore, for I will take care of him. The night of November 22, 1939, Ben and his two accomplices, Frankie Carbo and Al Tannenbaum, got into two cars. Tannenbaum drove Ben's Buick convertible, and Ben drove Carbo in a stolen Ford with no license plates. Ben instructed Tannenbaum to tail them after the hit and crash into any police cars that might be in pursuit. Ben pulled over outside the Greenberg's apartment complex and waited for him to leave to pick up his nightly newspaper. As soon as Greenberg was gone, Carbo got into position near the driveway, 
Pistol in hand, it wasn't long before Greenberg returned. As soon as Greenberg opened his car door, Carbo emerged from the shadows, pistol first. Five quick shots, and Greenberg was dead. Two witnesses, one in a car and one on foot, saw Carbo get into the getaway car. One of them later identified him. But what ultimately led to Ben's indictment was Tannenbaum. He and another mobster turncoat testified before a grand jury about Ben's involvement in the murder. Now Ben had a problem. On September 4, 1940, Ben arrived at his first arraignment handcuffed to a deputy on either side. He was in a sharp suit, but covered his face with a handkerchief. His bravado was slipping, and for good reason. He was denied bail. Ben would spend the next two months awaiting trial in the county jail. Even though Ben was in jail, his friends in the syndicate were still working on his behalf. They focused their efforts on the DA's office, doing their best to stymie the investigation any way they could. One of the witnesses to Greenberg's murder reported strange phone calls and strange people following him. He was placed under police protection. In the meantime, Ben made the most of his jail sentence. Instead of sleeping on a cot in his cell, he slept on a plush bed in the physician's office. He was allowed to entertain women in his cell, and his jailers would even bring them drinks. Ben hosted a variety of female visitors, but never his wife. While the other prisoners had to eat regulation jail fare, Ben imported meals from his favorite Los Angeles chefs. Once he even had a friend drop off a freshly killed pheasant, and a chef arrived to prepare it. Ben couldn't get around the regulation jail jumpsuit, but he did pay a tailor to alter his uniform to his measurements, with notched lapels and razor-sharp creases. During his 49-day stay, Ben left the jail facility 18 times, always in the custody of a deputy sheriff. The deputies were known to ditch their uniforms in favor of civilian clothes while driving Ben around town in order not to embarrass Mr. Siegel. The press had a field day with Ben's jail shenanigans, and he resented the coverage. He disputed any special treatment in jail and claimed that any prisoner could leave for approved appointments. Ben's protestations, combined with his fashion show at every court appearance, adroitly manipulated the media to his advantage. Ben maintained his status in Hollywood not only as an innocent man, but as a fellow celebrity suffering from overexposure. But occasionally, the carefully curated veneer would splinter. Flora Bell Muir, a writer for the New York Daily News, recounted a chilling encounter with Ben. He paced in front of her, ranting, You think because I'm locked up here, a punk like you can write anything you please. Maybe you won't be using that typewriter anymore. Maybe your fingers won't be on your hands. I have people outside who'll break your legs or drop you in a hole if I say the word. Ben's agitation was threatening to boil over, and it was about to get worse. In the fall of 1940, a new district attorney, John Dockweiler, was elected. Ben's November trial was pushed to December so Dockweiler could familiarize himself with the case. The syndicate's cover-up effort was about to be put to the test. 
But when December 1940 finally rolled around, there was no dramatic trial. Dockweiler was forced to admit that he didn't have enough evidence. Even as the judge dismissed Ben's charges, Dockweiler threatened that if the charges are dismissed and the evidence later is strengthened, he could be re-indicted, re-arrested, and brought to trial. Ben wasn't completely out of the woods yet, but he was released from jail. He finally had the opportunity to follow up on some new business he'd been rustling up in Las Vegas. Ben and the syndicate had been involved in the gambling business for a long time. One of their most profitable ventures was the Racewire service. This service relayed the details of racetrack conditions, names of jockeys and their steeds, odds and race results to bookies all across the country via telegraph. The Racewire existed in a legal gray area. Technically, the dissemination of this information wasn't illegal, but the betting it facilitated was. The race wire allowed bookies to collect bets on races across the country, not just on local tracks. This practice is called off-track betting, and it was illegal. Off-track betting was an attractive revenue stream for the syndicate. Horse racing was already one of the most lucrative gambling avenues because bets came in throughout the day, and often gamblers bet multiple times a day. Casinos, on the other hand, were usually only full on nights and weekends, and off-track betting expanded the profit possibilities even further. Ben had been steadily expanding his racewire empire since he moved to the West Coast in the mid-1930s. By 1940, his domain expanded across the Southwest, including Arizona, California, and Nevada. But profits from Nevada would soon outshine all other states. What drew Ben and the syndicate deeper into the Silver State in early 1941 was a recent change in state law. Nevada was now the only state with legal off-track betting. Soon after the law came into effect, Ben sent his childhood friend, Mo Sedway, to negotiate for control of the race wire in Las Vegas. Ben's Las Vegas race wire outfit was a lucrative feather in the syndicate's cap, and it had great promise of expansion. Ben took pride in seeing his business acumen applied to a legal enterprise he could brag openly about. But his focus was soon split by another set of legal troubles. True to his word, District Attorney John Dockweiler gathered more evidence and witnesses. And in September 1941, he secured a new indictment against Ben for the murder of Harry Greenberg. A trial was set for November 10th. Ben briefly evaded authorities, possibly hiding out somewhere in Nevada, before finally turning himself in in mid-October. The case against Ben looked grim, and this time, there was far less media coverage of Ben's off-campus jail exploits. Instead, Ben spent most of his time in his cell, quelling his anxiety with fistfuls of candy. He was closer to the straight life than ever before, but if Dockweiler had secured a second indictment, he must be holding an ace. Ben worried he might never see the outside of a cell again. Up next, we'll find out if the syndicate comes to Ben's rescue 
or if his dreams of a straight life are destroyed. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. In the fall of 1941, Benjamin Bugsy Siegel was 35 years old. He was bringing in money legally by distributing national horse race results to casinos in Las Vegas. He was closer to legitimacy than ever before, but he was also locked up on a murder charge. Los Angeles District Attorney John Dockweiler had dug up new evidence on the 1939 murder of Harry Greenberg, and this time, Ben wasn't sure he could beat the charges. The witnesses and evidence Doc Weiler had lined up wouldn't just put Ben in prison for the rest of his life. It would threaten the entire syndicate. While Ben was locked up in Los Angeles, the rest of the syndicate was hard at work undermining Doc Weiler's precious evidence. In mid-November 1941, Abe Rellis was holed up on the sixth floor of the Half Moon Hotel on Coney Island. He was fidgety his gaze constantly drawn out the window. Rellis was a former hitman for Lepke Bukalter, the gangster who ordered the Greenberg murder. Now, Rellis was a key witness for Doc Weiler, as long as he was alive. Rellis was under heavy protection, but he knew better than to relax. Ben and the rest of the syndicate had been relentless in trying to take him out. So far, the police had been successful in keeping Rellis safe. They only had a few more days before he would tell his story in court. He didn't make it. No one knows exactly what happened to Rellis, but a few days before he was due to put his knowledge on the official record, Rellis was found flattened on the sidewalk outside his hotel. Either he jumped or someone threw him out of the sixth-story window. There was a short rope made from wire and bedsheets hanging out his window, which suggests that Rellis fell to his death while trying to climb out, either to escape danger or to escape his police protection detail. The New York Times published a rumor that Ben promised Rellis's wife $50,000 if he managed to sneak out of police custody. Of course, a syndicate assassin could have made the rope after he tossed Rellis out the window. We'll never know. District Attorney Doc Weiler had no choice. 
On January 19, 1942, he proceeded with the trial, despite the loss of his key witness. The results were predictably disastrous for the state of California. Without Rellis, Dockweiler could only present the evidence he knew was insufficient back in 1940. Less than a month later, around Ben's 36th birthday, Ben's attorney Jerry Geisler filed a motion for dismissal of charges. Superior Court Judge A.A. A. Scott granted it against his better judgment, writing, A careful examination of the record before the court discloses that suspicion, even of a grave nature, must be conceded as far as the defendant Siegel is concerned. But that is insufficient to establish the corroboration required by law. In other words, everyone knew Ben was guilty. But the state of California had no choice but to release him. Ben viewed his defeat of this particular rap as a public exoneration, a clean slate, a chance to finally sink his teeth into his newest legitimate business. By July 1942, Ben's associate, Mo Sedway, had secured five years of exclusive rights to the Las Vegas Wire Service for $900 a week. Sedway named his Vegas setup the Ceneva News Service and set up an office to receive the telegraphed track information. The office then relayed that information to all the subscribing casinos over a loudspeaker. At first, only one casino subscribed to the service, but competition on the Las Vegas Strip was fierce, and soon more casino owners were visiting Sedway's office to sign up. By February 1943, three casinos had added race books to their facilities, and they each paid $300 a week to utilize Ben's wire service. The beauty of the race wire was the way it opened up other business opportunities. One struggling outfit, the Frontier Club, not only subscribed to the wire service, but they also brought in Mo Sedway to run their entire race book. Now, Ben collected $300 a week in subscription fees and a percentage of all the bets placed in the Frontier Club. This trend continued. Ben ended up with a stake in the race book at the Las Vegas Club, the Northern Club, Hotel El Rancho Vegas, Hotel Last Frontier, and the Golden Nugget. It appears that most of these acquisitions were made legitimately, but with Ben's history and relationships with the syndicate, we'll never know for sure. One of the owners of the Hotel Last Frontier reported that it was widely understood not only that Siegel determined who was to get the racebook service, but also that he would have an interest in the proceeds of such service. Ben leveraged the competitive Las Vegas market to cultivate this understanding. If a casino owner resisted cutting Ben into his proceeds, Ben would simply increase the cost of his race wire service. The only way the casino owners could offset the cost of the service was if they cut Ben into the profits. The major advantage for Ben was that he was able to collect massive profits with minimal upfront costs. He hadn't had to pay for the construction or upkeep of the physical gambling dens. He just stepped in and collected a percentage of bets already being placed there. By the mid-1940s, by some estimates, Ben was personally bringing in up to $25,000 a month, worth over $350,000 today. 
he was able to use some of these profits to make larger investments in hotel casinos themselves, including the El Cortez and the Northern Club. In March 1945, Ben and a group of buyers, including Meyer Lansky and Mo Sedway, purchased the El Cortez outright for $600,000, or about $8.5 million today. These investments gave Ben a glimpse into the next tier of the gambling business. With his race wire service, Ben was like a barnacle clinging onto the massive cruise ship of a casino, and he resented it. He wanted to captain his own ship. While Ben strengthened his grip on Las Vegas throughout the 1940s, someone else was strengthening her grip on him. Virginia Hill was the epitome of a mobster hussy, gorgeous, mysterious, and tempestuous. Finally, Ben had met someone who could match his hair-trigger temper and insatiable appetite for Flash. It's not clear exactly when Ben and Virginia first met, but they shared a similar come-up in Hollywood. Both of them were beautiful and charming and desperate to prove they fit in, despite their gangster connections. Virginia ended up in Los Angeles after working for years with Joe Epstein, an accountant who laundered money for the Chicago arm of the syndicate. Epstein described Virginia this way to Meyer Lansky, once that girl is under your skin, it's like a cancer. It's incurable. Indeed, once Ben grew close to Virginia, he was quickly all in. Ben and Virginia's relationship heated up in the mid-1940s. Their salad days, as they called them, Virginia accompanied Ben everywhere he went, and he constantly lavished her with gifts, furs, jewelry, and heaps of cash. Ben and Virginia's relationship wasn't all salad days. They were also known for their explosive fights. Mo Sedway's wife, B, says Virginia had a mouth like a truck driver and liked to throw objects at Ben during their fights. The more expensive, the better. But more often than not, the fights ended with a lengthy session in the bedroom. Ben referred to Virginia as his flamingo. The nickname was fitting. Although Virginia often changed her hair color, she was a natural redhead. And Ben was known to lust after her pair of endlessly long legs. Ben would be obsessed with one flamingo or another for the rest of his life. Just beyond the hotel last frontier on the emerging Las Vegas Strip was a dusty, neglected group of shacks. They were under the ownership of Billy Wilkerson, another Hollywood hotshot. Wilkerson published The Hollywood Reporter, which is still in print today. Wilkerson had dreams of building a luxury hotel and casino where the dusty shacks now stood, but he had a serious gambling problem. Throughout 1945, he vacillated between gathering cash and investors for the project and throwing up his hands when his compulsive gambling racked up huge debts. With a head of steam, Wilkerson approached Ben's partner, Mo Sedway, about helping him run the casino in April 1945. Sedway brought the opportunity back to Ben and the rest of the syndicate, and they were interested. But only a few months later, Wilkerson despaired that his gambling addiction had killed the project. Ben was only too happy to watch Wilkerson twist in the wind suffering at the whims of his addiction. 
he knew that an unstable owner would eventually have to come crawling to him for money. Wilkerson finally started construction on the lot in January of 1946, but building materials were expensive, and he inevitably turned to the poker table to try and make up the difference. When he lost $150,000, he was forced to shut the project down entirely. Ben's time had finally come. Wilkerson retained ownership of the land, but on February 26, 1946, he signed over two-thirds ownership of his casino project in exchange for a million dollars toward construction costs. That million dollars was put together by a large group of buyers, including a cast of familiar characters, Meyer Lansky, Moe Sedway, and Ben Siegel. But for Ben, this project was different. He wasn't content to remain disguised behind a front as he was in the Racewire venture, or as another name in a group of buyers as he was in the El Cortez deal. Ben wanted complete control, and it would take a few power moves to get it. Up next, Ben ties his fate to a dusty lot at the barren end of the Las Vegas Strip. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. In February 1946, Ben Siegel was 40 years old and embarking on the project that would define his life. The Flamingo was still just an empty lot, but Ben could already envision the grandeur to come. To bring it to life, however, he would need total control, and that would require some savvy maneuvers. Ben got started by forming a company called the Nevada Project Corporation on July 26, 1946. The initial stock offering raised $500,000 that Ben put directly toward construction costs. But that stock offering also accomplished something even more important. As long as Billy Wilkerson retained ownership of the land the Flamingo was being built on, Ben would never be top dog on the project. But Wilkerson was still in the grip of his gambling habit and in continual want of cash. When Ben offered him stock options in the Nevada Project Corporation in exchange for the land ownership, he accepted. As soon as Wilkerson signed on the dotted line, Ben finally had his prize, the Flamingo, named for his leggy mistress, Virginia Hill. Ben's obsession with the Flamingo was a mystery to his business partners. He wasn't particularly experienced in construction or design. Up to this point, he had always worked through fronts and proxies in Las Vegas, which allowed him to travel and keep up with all of his other investments, including Virginia. Ben wasn't forthcoming with his business partners about why he wanted to build and run a ritzy Las Vegas hotel and casino, but he did say something illuminating to his 15-year-old daughter, Millicent, when she confronted him about his criminal habits. Ben admitted that he had participated in criminal activity in the past, but said, 
Now I am building a hotel and am 100% legitimate. For Ben, the flamingo was his path to the straight life. But even though he viewed it as turning over a new leaf, in reality, he was repeating the same pattern. He saw something he wanted, and he took it. But first, he had to get the flamingo made. With construction came its fair share of problems, what Ben referred to as headaches. His biggest headache was the ever-increasing construction expenses. When Ben initially prepared a loan document in August 1946, he estimated that costs would come to about $1 million, including finishing touches like furnishings. An editorial published in March of 1947 estimated the final construction costs at $7 million, worth over $80 million today. Ben was fixated on finding ways to keep money flowing into the project. He started by selling the El Cortez, another casino he'd taken part in purchasing. But the profits from that sale barely put a dent in the ballooning costs of the Flamingo. The Nevada Project Corporation initial stock offering also helped, but Ben knew he'd need to find a loan. He put on his best suit and presented himself in the offices of several banks, including Bank of America, Occidental Insurance, Anglo-American Insurance Company, and Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. They all turned him down. The bankers all considered Ben and the Flamingo too hot to underwrite. They suspected that Ben was still engaging in criminal activity and was likely under investigation by law enforcement. Legitimate money was not an option. Luckily, Ben knew how to get his hands on money from less proper sources. Ben hopped on a plane to New York and rounded up cash from his mob cronies, most significantly gangland boss Frank Costello. Some estimate that Ben collected over $2 million. He returned to Las Vegas in October 1946, finally confident he had the money he needed to finish his hotel and casino. But there was another wrinkle. Ben couldn't find a local bank willing to even transfer the money from New York. But that wasn't going to stop him. Legend has it that Ben returned to a Las Vegas bank a few days later with several henchmen in tow, all carrying heavy bags. They approached the teller. Ben had one of his men put their bag on the counter. He unzipped the bag. It was full of cash. If the bank wouldn't accept a transfer, perhaps they would take a deposit. But even when Ben had all the money he needed, the headaches were far from over. On August 5, 1946, the Clark County Liquor and License Board convened to consider the Flamingo's application for liquor and gambling licenses. Ben knew that these licenses were make or break. He vented about his fears to Virginia, saying, If they refuse to give me a gambling license, what am I going to do with the hotel? Stick it up my ass? His fears weren't unfounded. The board failed to take action on his application. Ben wasn't going to take this lying down. On August 9th, he and a few other investors appeared directly before the board. Despite their impressive presentation, the board concluded the meeting by merely saying that they would take their application under advisement. 
That wasn't enough for Ben. Later, he met with a few of the commissioners outside regular business hours. There are a few different versions of how those out-of-office visits went down. Ben told Meyer Lansky that he bawled the Jesus out of them. But one of the commissioners contends that he was won over when Ben told him what a nice place he was going to build. Las Vegas journalist John Kalen claims that he arranged for Ben to bribe the lone holdout board member who was a Mormon. In any case, on August 14th, the board approved Ben's request. The Flamingo had its license. Handling government officials was a specialty of Ben's. Construction, on the other hand, was not. Ben had never overseen a major construction project before, and that inexperience was bound to cause some mishaps. Of all the parts of the facility, Ben was most excited to tour his personal penthouse. He peeled back the plastic sheeting and took in the expansive living area. And there was a giant steel beam sticking out of the ceiling. It lowered the height of the room to only 5 feet 8 inches. To cross his living room, Ben had to hunch over. Ben had some strong words for the architect. The roof was removed and the beam elevated for the tidy sum of $21,500. Today, that's more than $283,000. In spite of all the headaches, construction moved ahead. Ben put out every fire that stood in his way, and by the fall of 1946, there was light at the end of the tunnel. Although the hotel was still several months from completion, he couldn't wait to show his creation to the world. He selected December 26, 1946 as the opening date. No one else on Ben's team thought this was a good idea. December was historically a slow month for Las Vegas, and Ben's lawyer, Louis Weiner Jr., warned him that without the hotel completed, the Flamingo's casino wouldn't hold on to any profits. He advised, the customers, if they win, will leave and go to the two other hotels. If they lose, they will leave and go. What do you do with the wife if the husband is still gambling and she wants to go to bed? But Ben held the course. Weiner suspected that Ben may have been facing pressure from the syndicate in New York. Ben had burned through a huge sum of syndicate money building the Flamingo, and the mobsters were antsy to see a return on their investment. On the big night, there was a line around the block for the valet. Entering from the parking lot, guests were wowed by the interior of the hotel, gushing over a forest of evergreens, palm trees along the sidewalk, and semi-tropical shrubs, all lit up in red and blue. Ben met guests at the door in a black tuxedo, a pink carnation tucked into his lapel. The interior was decorated with modern statues and sophisticated draperies. The furniture was all tomato red, and every surface that wasn't for cards or drinks was adorned with flowers. The press coverage of the night was overwhelmingly positive. Columnist Jimmy Starr described the Flamingo as an adult's fairyland, a room that might have been dreamed up by Walt Disney. Hollywood writer Bob Thomas wrote that the casino floor resembled a set that MGM wanted to build but couldn't because of budget limitations. Ben spent the night working the room, striding all over the place like a proud papa. 
Virginia was on Ben's arm for the first three nights the casino was open. She dyed her hair a different color for each night. Although the fabulous Flamingo's opening appeared to be a huge success, when the numbers were crunched, the reality was less than fabulous. Everyone who gambled at the Flamingo during that opening week won big. By one estimate, the players walked out with hundreds of thousands of dollars. And after the luster of the opening wore down, attendance shrank. After a month, the casino was deep in the red, and the hotel was still unfinished. Ben funneled all his income from his race books to cover payroll, but it wasn't enough. On February 6, 1947, Ben had no choice but to shutter the casino until the hotel was completed on March 1st. The grand reopening on March 1st was just as lauded in the press as the first, but the fully operational hotel casino continued to face losses. Ben had problems collecting debts from gamblers. Attendance continued to be unreliable. In the first half of 1947, the Flamingo didn't see a single profitable month. Ben could feel the syndicate breathing down his neck. He wasn't just running a failing casino. He was under the gun, literally, to pay off the loans he'd accepted from his fellow gangsters. He took to pacing in his penthouse. His nerves were fraying, and he was growing paranoid. Ben even started turning on his most trusted allies. In June 1947, Ben and Mo Sedway got into an argument. It's not clear what the disagreement was about, but a witness recalled Ben kicking Sedway in the rear end. After that, Sedway was banned from the Flamingo. On June 19, 1947, Ben's close friend Meyer Lansky called from New York. We don't know exactly what the content of the conversation was, but some have speculated that Lansky was calling to warn him that the Flamingo's losses were about to catch up with him. The next day, June 20th, 1947, Ben got on a plane to Los Angeles. When a friend asked Ben why he was headed to LA, he replied, that's where the dough is. Concerned, his friend followed up. You got problems? Ben shrugged it off. Nothing I can't handle. Ben arrived in Los Angeles late and went straight to the house in Beverly Hills for a few hours of sleep. The next day, he had breakfast with friends and hit up his favorite barber for a shave and a haircut. He also ran into his actor friend, George Raft. Ben told him, My two daughters are coming out from New York by train in a couple of days, and I promised to take them to Lake Louise up in Canada. He certainly wasn't going back to Vegas anytime soon. Back at the Flamingo, guests at the evening show noticed a full table of eight men behaving strangely. They weren't enjoying the performer. In fact, they all looked downright grave. Before the show was over, another man approached the table and whispered something to each one of them. Then they all got up and separated. They stationed themselves all around the casino, in the cage, at security, at the registration desk, and at the front door. Out in Los Angeles, Ben finished up his night with a big dinner at Jack's on the beach. He returned to the house in Beverly Hills around 10.15 p.m. and plopped himself down on the couch with a newspaper. 
Outside, a hitman dressed in black slunk behind the shrubs. He couldn't be seen from the street, and he couldn't be seen from inside. He carefully aligned his 30 caliber carbine on the trellis, pointing it through the window. Inside, only 14 feet away, Ben was reading the paper. Just before 11 p.m., the hitman pulled the trigger. He fired nine bullets. Two of them hit Ben in the chest. One went through the bridge of his nose and tore out his left eye as it exited. A fourth bullet went through his right cheek and came out the back of his neck. When it was over, Ben was unrecognizable. Inside the newspaper Ben had been reading, there was a small slip of paper with the words, Good night, sleep well. Neighbors rushed outside at the sound of the gunshots. They were only fast enough to see the getaway car screeching into the night. At the Flamingo, Moe Sedway entered the bar with a few other cronies. Employees were shocked to see him. He hadn't shown his face in the casino since his falling out with Ben. Sedway wasted no time. He informed the staff that Ben Siegel had been murdered and he was taking over operations at the Flamingo. The Los Angeles Police Department and the FBI spent months investigating Ben's murder, but they never turned up anything more than theories. It's reasonable to assume that Ben was killed by members of his own syndicate, and their motivations were probably numerous. Ben had racked up an obscene amount of debt building the Flamingo, and his management skills were questionable. His tight grip on the race wire service rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Perhaps Ben was skimming too much of their profits. There are even rumors that Ben was involved in the narcotics trade, and his murder was revenge for dealers he killed. We'll never know exactly why Ben was murdered, who pulled the trigger, or who ordered the hit, exactly as the killer wanted it. For decades, the Las Vegas Chamber of Commerce put a stop to any movie or television show that illustrated Las Vegas history with organized crime or with Ben Siegel. The Flamingo did the same, especially after Hilton took ownership of the property in 1972. A representative for the Flamingo said in 1996, the Bugsy image was not something that was particularly endearing to the Flamingo or Hilton. We made a conscious decision to distance ourselves from the Bugsy heritage. Now, the only remaining relics of Ben left on the property are a plaque in the expansive gardens and a bar in the casino called Bugsy's Bar. Ben would have despised that commemoration. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. You can find all episodes of Kingpins and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Kingpins, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Kingpins on Spotify, just open the app and type Kingpins in the search bar. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Kingpins was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>